when we wrote The Complete History of Comedy Abridged, we mentioned blackface and tried to talk about the history of minstrel shows. And weirdly, coming from a couple of white guys, audiences didn't want to hear this. Mm. Um, and yeah. But, but fortunately, now I know a man named Jarrell Henderson, who's a director and an educator and a scholar who has been teaching a course on the history of blackface. Um, so is this a funny course or a, or a charged painful course? I hope it's a little bit of both. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. Thanks for subscribing, streaming, or downloading and listening to us on your computer or tablet or phone. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 637, History of Blackface. The shameful and racist practice of blackface has cropped up in the news with shocking frequency recently. And it's sort of equally shocking that blackface entertainment, that is white performers and for a time black performers, using burnt cork to blacken their faces and depict African-American behavior in demeaning and stereotypical ways, was one of the most popular forms of entertainment in America for over a hundred years and can still be seen in movies up to about the middle of the 20th century. Director and teaching artist Jarrell L. Henderson teaches about the history of blackface, so I was dying to talk to him about this. Last week, I decided to post this conversation today, ironically, the day after the movie Green Book won the Oscar for Best Picture. Green Book has its own troubling issues, which are kind of funny and mostly infuriating, so it's sort of perfect that Jarrell began his conversation with me, which we had last year, by explaining what kind of funny these issues of blackface and cultural appropriation are. Not funny, haha, but but sardonically, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, cynically, yes. Uh, you know what I mean? When you kind of look at the way that history is played out and even some comments that you still hear from people, not only in the media, but in academia, um, in terms of, uh, you know, what African-Americans or just people of color, people from the African diaspora contributed to theater and to live arts. And you're just like, oh, you think this is new. You think that what I'm, you think that my objections are new and based on, you know, my own insight that I've gathered in 37 years and that I'm not actually reaching into a legacy of trauma that lasts back well over a hundred years from where we stand today. Like a hundred years ago today, minstrelsy was already a booming business and it had been for a generation. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like, you know, well, they were doing minstrel. There's a minstrel show in in the film Stormy Weather in the early 1940s. Oh, there's it's, a yeah. You know, it started in the 1820s. You know, like it's popular for a really long time. And did it? And, and do I understand it correctly that minstrel shows began as white folks appropriating black styles and arts, or was it? Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. It is credited to a man named Thomas Dartmouth Rice or Daddy Rice, however you want to uh, refer to him. And the legend is it all it you know depends on who's telling it, but the legend is you know he was walking down the street. He was a performer, and he saw a stable hand or a slave uh, performing some kind of business. And while he was doing it, he was singing a song. Sometimes the slave that's referred to was crippled, and so that's where the hop comes from. Um, and so he sees this and he gets this creative idea because he's a creative person. And so he gets 
cork and he burns it down and he uses the black on his face except around his lips to accentuate the sides of the lips and he finds a, a you know kind of woolly-ish wig because black people have woolly hair and he you know depending again depending on who's telling the story he either takes the clothes from the slave or he finds clo- tattered clothes that resembles what the slave was wearing and he goes on that night and he performs the song Jim Crow uh, and it I mean it's a sensation. I mean, think of all the things that have, you know, blown up commercially in our world in terms of Hamilton, in terms of, you know, you know when I was a teenager, the success of Will Smith, you know what I mean? Or like Beyonce at Coachella and, you know, like the incredible reaction that that new fresh thing started. Like, that's what he did. Yeah. And people were like, oh, my goodness, that's exactly how black people behave. He's captured it. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, and so it becomes an industry. And was it, it uh, uh, was it exclusively for white folks to dress up as to black up, or were there opportunities for African Americans to also do uh, minstrel shows? It began with uh, white performers putting on blackface and imitating uh, black what, what they perceived to be black behavior um, to high comedic effect. That's how it began. Now, eventually, because it was a booming business and it's part of popular culture, you know, um, we we tend to latch onto what's whatever is in the water while we're out there swimming. Um, and so, eventually, uh, I think it's usually around. Just before, just after the Civil War, uh, African-American troops begin to make their way. Because the ar- the argument becomes, why would you watch a white person pretending to be black when you can watch a black person being black? Mm-hmm. You know, And so you have this – I mean, I love American history. You have this scenario where it becomes black people pretending to be white people, pretending to be black people. It becomes this delicious kind of you know, popular culture schizophrenia where we're all playing the other and the idea of what that otherized means. And, and African-Americans begin to – to interpret an otherness of themselves that was created out of themselves. It's, it's just, it's really, really mind-blowing if you, th- if you think about the layers that goes into that. Well, it's, it's like Shakespeare's um, women who are played by men who are then uh, pretending yeah. to be women, men. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so when... when after yeah, a guy giving a woman feedback on how to play Ophelia. <laughs> you know I mean? Right. When I played the part, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was the definitive Ophelia, and when I did it... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so, 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 did I hear you? Yeah. With, uh, uh, so, uh, uh, so African American performers were pretending to be white, pretending to be African American. So they were well in the form. In the form, yes, yeah, so, yes, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. Form. So, but and it, and they were creating, they were recreating an act that had been interpreted by white folks. It wasn't. They weren't creating. They weren't showing the whole panoply of African American behavior and talent. They were they were conforming to a, a kind of a mode and a style, right? At first, and then there are arguments that it began to expand. Once you start to get into the turn of the last century, you start getting to folks like Williams and Walker and the the Johnson brothers, you know, Bob Cole and Jay Roseman Johnson. Um, you know, it, you know, uh, then. Uh, Academics and, and people who studied the form and the history of it begin to make arguments that there was interpretation and you know counter themes running into these themes, and so you would have a play, you know, a George Walker Burt Williams play. They were African American performers uh, or performers from the Af- African diaspora, and and you have the way that some of the jokes are constructed, the way that some of the routines are constructed. Um, 
there's an argument that the joke splits the audience, that when white people hear the joke, they hear one thing, that when black audiences hear the joke, they hear another thing. They hear African, they hear African Americans mocking the like tradition. Yeah. Um, the, the, one of the ideas behind the cakewalk of, you know, this form of dance that, you know, African American slaves see white people dancing and begin to make fun of it. White people see them dancing and think, well, that's the way they dance and begin to market that. You know, the, the cakewalk's a part of that, that whole tradition of people looking at the other, looking at the other. Um, so as, as the form expanded um, and became a little bit more, uh, uh, there's more people of color being touching it, you can make an argument that they were putting some more resistance and they begin to show more. And we also know that um, George Walker's, wife, Ada Overton, um, one of the things that they tried really hard to do was expand um, genuine love relationships on stage. Prior to that generation, um, African-Americans weren't allowed to be in genuine love. It was always the butt of a joke. Um, but they tried to create you know, genuine relationships of love and trust. And so that's a way of trying to usurp the forum, even as you're playing within the forum. Uh, Burt Williams always performed in blackface. Mm. You know, George Walker did not. You know what I mean? And so it it becomes a little bit more interesting as it evolves. And Burt Williams is a name that uh, that some listeners will remember because he got into movies. Did George Walker transition into movies? No, uh, he he died fairly young. Um, He uh, uh, contracted syphilis and uh, passed away, yeah, Um, and, you know, kind of lost it. And his wife... Once he passed away, his wife kind of stepped in. So he, he didn't really get to latch into that. And even Burt Williams, it's at the very beginning. You know, he, he, you, know you can YouTube, I think, uh, the poker, you know, his, his poker routine, yeah. you know, which is wonderful. It's wonderful to watch. Hi, this is Joanne Pillsbury. I'm the Angela E. Pearson Curator of Ancient American Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and we're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and illustrated by the marvelous Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. Our 2019 tour continues next week at the Lancaster Performing Arts Center in Lancaster, California, then continues on with performances in Idaho Falls, Idaho, St. John's University, and Collegeville, Minnesota, Reston, Virginia, Houghton, Michigan, Appleton, Wisconsin, Lubbock, Texas, Amherst, Massachusetts, Flint, Michigan, River Forest, and Effingham, Illinois, Meridian, Kansas, a week at the Virginia Arts Festival in Norfolk, Virginia, and we'll be giving two performances of William Shakespeare's long-lost first play abridged in Los Angeles at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, California. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. And now back to my conversation with director and teaching artist Jarell L. Henderson. You call the course The History of Blackface. Is it 
is that completely aligned with the history of minstrel shows, or then did black as blackface has continued on outside of minstrelsy? That's I love that question. It's it's called the history of blackface because it actually goes for me and what interests me. It actually goes beyond the minstrel shows. Yeah. The minstrel show was just the engine that got it all started, as far as I'm concerned, because minstrel shows more or less stopped existing in their original form again around the, the turn of the 20th century. Once you begin to get into you know minstrelsy and the Tom shows, the shows based on Uncle Tom's Cabin, where suddenly slavery was a great thing that every black person mourned the loss of, you know, it was so amazing, you know, um, you know, that would eventually evolve into thing, you know, uh, things that would be taken on by burlesque and then eventually vaudeville and then eventually musical theater. So I love to tell, you know, musical theater kids, it's like, if you love musical theater, this is your history. You know, this is your great, great granddaddy. It's called history of blackface because the idea of blackface is really, a lot of the images and character types that came out of minstrelsy continue to exist in blackface. And even when blackface became less literal, so people stopped blackening their faces, themes and ideas and character traits that were birthed in the era of minstrelsy continue on. So blackface for me is what Robert Downey Jr. was doing in Tropic Thunder. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's still considered blackface. It's, it's you know, it's it's what... Billy Crystal was the one when he was playing Sammy Davis Jr. On, on SNL, you know, or Gene Wilder in, I think it was Silver Street with him and him and Richard yeah, right. Pryor. Right. You know what I mean? It's coming from a less insidious place. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you're still putting on this uh, effect. And you can make arguments as to whether or not it's good or great or funny, whether or not it was accepted when it came out and we needed that in order to evolve, yet and still, still and yet. In fact, for me, blackface is, you know, there there's a a character from Family Matters called uh, Waldo Geraldo Faldo. And he was very slow and not very quick-witted, you know what I mean? And, and made silly kind of jokes that were based on mis- misunderstanding of language. And that tradition comes through, that tradition comes right out of instruency, including the, the insane name, the really, really funny, silly name, you know, was, uh, you know, I'm going to go, you know, what is it? I'm going to go see Jif. What is that? It's JFK. I know how to spell, you know, like really, really silly, crazy stuff like that. And it's less, it's just hidden. It's, it's just tampered down a little bit. But the idea remains strong. And so that's why I call it the history of blackface, because I actually think that this tradition expands beyond just what was the menstrual show and literally blackening up your face. Right. And so, and so our um, awareness of it and appreciation of it is complicated at best. Is, yeah, is is I always that's interesting that you bring up Billy Crystal because I always wondered how does he get a pass on doing Sammy Davis Jr. because it feels like he does. It depends on the time in which it's created. Yeah, which is why you know thirty plus years later people are like, look at that, that's not okay. You're like, but it was okay when I did it. It's okay, yeah, you know exactly. Um, <laughs> and it's and it's great if they go, yeah, but I get it. It's not cool now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unlike um, the Simpsons, who went, no, it's still great uh, about a poo. Well, yeah, I mean, talk about a bastion of white privilege. And I grew up loving the Simpsons. I mean, I can quote, if you were a Simpsons fan, I could go back quoting back and forth. But again, at this point in my evolution as a human being, I got I to gotta say to myself, you know what? That was then, and I, I know better now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if they're not going to evolve, then maybe I shouldn't be interacting with that brand of comedy anymore, even though I have a nostalgic Right. relationship with it and some of the jokes are brilliantly constructed if when they are called out time has passed and they are called out on something that wasn't okay then it's just that the voices that are visible now were visible then 
Right. It was never okay. You know what I mean? The fact that, you know, their interpretation seems to be, well, you know, it is what it is and we'll get to it if we get to it. It's like, well, your privilege puts you in a situation in which you can do that. You are rich now. You will probably continue to be rich. You also have white privilege. You don't have to engage in that conversation. You can just be like, yeah, whatever. Let's pretend um, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. It must so, not exist because I'm not feeling it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like, well, it was okay then. That was the thing of, like, you know, something that was okay in the time before is suddenly not okay or suddenly right. not politically correct, which is an out. I mean, come on. But so, get, but getting back to the character that you mentioned from Family Matters is part of the, is part of, I don't know, the problem or the, or, or, or the, the, the flip side, the positive element now is that part of it, part of the problem was that there, with so little representation of African American uh, behavior and, and characters, on screen to see to see the stereotypes was is ridiculous in a world that had that all like in a, even in a show that allows for Urkel is yeah. there is there or is Urkel is Urkel part of the tradition too I guess what I'm asking is do you get away with different kinds of characters now because we have so many kinds of the short answer yes I think that that's what it comes down to I think historically um, part of the issue seems to have been, because I wasn't there, <laughs> um, uh, seems to have been the fact that there were so such limited representations that the representations that were put out really mattered and really stuck. And so, you know, I've met people who's, you know, who learned about what they thought black life was from popular images on television, which is, of course, very limited. If you look at the range of white characters that have been placed in television, print media, and film, it's such a wide array yeah. that there are various images you can point to. But, you know, you go to Latino, oh, my God, go to, like, you know, like, images of Asian folks on screen. You know, there's, like, three, you know? Mm -hmm. Not literally, of course, but you, you understand what I mean. It's so... You become a lot more sensitive, or at least I become a lot more sensitive about the images that are shown because there are so few. Once those images begin to expand, at least for me, you can relax a little bit because you can begin to point to other things. There becomes a vast array. There are people within the African diaspora that like are just really silly or get things mixed up or confused. So I, <laughs> when I was teaching college theater students uh, a year ago, I showed we were talking about comedy, and I played a lot of clips um, from things that they had no idea about. I mean, I don't know what the parents of today's college students are teaching their kids, but they're certainly not teaching them about great comedy. But I would play them, Key and Peele, of course, they knew. Um, 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 who are you, uh, who, when you're teaching this course, are you teaching it to theater students? Yeah, well, this, this course was a, was a guest, guest lecture that I did twice at Illinois State University. I was brought in by a friend of mine to teach this. Um, I've also taught a version of this for a different class at Franklin and Marshall in Lancaster a few years back. Um, usually it's in uh, theater classes. So when I was at FNM, that was a class that I was teaching on, on the history of African-American theater, and this, of course, is a big part of it. Uh, for Illinois State, it was um, you know one lecture in uh, introduction to theater course, you know, and the professor who was teaching it thought that it was an important thing. He didn't feel you know okay beginning to talk about this thing. So he, you know, he brought in someone that he thought could do it well. Um, it just seems so, yeah. like it's so valuable. It's such a valuable topic for it, it should be taught to students who aren't in the theater department. I agree. I, one of my favorite ways of understanding history, and I love history, has actually been through the history of theater, and particularly the history through theater of people of color. Um, because so many things get glossed over when you're talking about theater in general. And of course, there's, I mean, it's such a wide, it's such a large topic. But when you begin to understand how society operates in terms of who's let in and who's kept out, 
you know, there's a great anecdote in um, Spreading Rhythm Around, uh, a book about uh, African-American musicians around the turn of the last century, where it talks about Ernest Hogan, who performed in Minstrelsy and uh, the early days of vaudeville. And he was caught up in a race riot because, you know, this is a race riot that took place in downtown Manhattan. Uh, you know, people think that that stuff only happened in the South. And, uh, you know, I had a student that questioned a statement that I made. And so I was like, why don't I just bring in the source material and just read you what I found? And so I read the story about how this, he was a Broadway star. He was the, one of the biggest Broadway stars of his era. And he walks outside the stage door and there's a mob. And they're like, hey, get that, get this guy. You know, and they knew who he was. Just like Ernest Hogan, a popular and successful African-American performer at the beginning of the last century, you think about the evolution of that until when we got to shuffle along and it becomes this whole great back and forth between what's happening in, you know, in Midtown and what's happening in Uptown. Uh, and then it all goes away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't see anything like that for a couple of years. It's, 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 I think it's a really great end to history in American, like, you know, just how we as Americans have evolved. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your racist comic traditions via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Interlocutor Matthew Croak. Web services by Ginger Power Limited, music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout out this week goes to Fiona Phillips. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Dr. Joanne Pillsbury, the curator of ancient American art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 637 1911ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less.